Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you're not currently affiliated with a community, church, or synagogue, and would like to be part of the larger Beth Emanuel family, you can apply for long-distance membership at BethEmmanuel.org slash membership. Flash forward a decade as you get off the plane and go through King Messiah Airport, the airport formerly known as Ben-Gurion, to pick up your luggage. You exit the airport to see posters and advertisements reading, Welcome King Yeshua our Messiah, plastered all over Jerusalem. Moshiach has arrived and been on the scene for a decade now, and all Israel has been fundamentally transformed. The United Nations has just met one last time in the aftermath of World War III and Yeshua's supernatural victory. The UN passes a resolution declaring Yeshua of Nazareth the supreme world leader and elevating Judaism to the world's universal religion and rule of law. Under the guidance and direction of King Yeshua, the city of Jerusalem has been restored and rebuilt with the towering presence of the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, dominating the skyline of the city. You marvel at the magnificent effort of the last few years of streams of funds and materials pouring in from all 193 countries around the world to take part in the historic rebuilding of Jerusalem's holy site. You're reminded of the prophetic vision of Ezekiel of the third temple, the very temple you see before your eyes, as he says, Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Ezekiel 37, 28. There's an electricity in the air. As the excitement of Yom Kippur's arrival approaches, a baseball scoreboard-sized digital countdown is posted in the city, counting down the hours, minutes, and seconds till dusk, marking the inauguration of the world celebration of the first annual Yom Kippur service in the Holy Temple, the first in 2,000 years, that is. You wade through the myriad of crowds of people from every nation, a walk of life, as you enter the courtyard of the nations on the Temple Mount. You see banners held up, Arabs for Yeshua, Japan for King Messiah, the Spanish delegation of King Yeshua, and the hundreds of similar banners and signs dotted throughout the sea of tens of thousands of people. You've seen the 24-hour news station coverage of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest's clothing and vessels to be used in the services of the day. But now you're actually there. You'll finally get to see the Kohen Gadol in all the resplendent beauty and jaw-dropping magnificence of his priestly dress. Last week opened with the laws and procedures detailing the holiday of Yom Kippur, the Holy Day of Atonement. In the Torah summary section of Vayikra, Leviticus 16, verses 29 through 34, there's a curious set of verses. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. What are we to make of this statement? Does the phrase strangers who sojourn among you, hager hagar betochechem, only indicate Gentile converts? Indeed, that's the Archgold's rendering, the proselyte, i.e. convert, who dwells among you. But is there a more expansive reading? Amidst the seeming ambiguity of these verses and dozens like them, regarding the identity, role, and obligation of the stranger that's in your gates, the stranger who sojourns among you, the early community of Talmudim and Shlichim, the disciples and apostles, 
of our master vigorously debated the issue. The hot button question was whether one from another nation joining him or herself to Israel through our Messiah needed to obtain, quote, full citizenship through legal conversion to Judaism. What were the expectations of a Gertoshav, one who dwelt with Israel, what would the expectations be? Alternatively, how far could they go? What were the boundaries? Conversely, if everyone converted, how would this fulfill the dozens of prophecies describing, quote, a people from people from all the nations grasping the garment of a Jew? Well, what do you do when you have a problem in the Messianic world? You have a conference. So the first of an original Messianic conference known as the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 sought to give some definition and started the process. But much more work is left to be done in our modern expression of Gentiles and Jews living together. It's been a year now since Pastor Lancaster's rebooting Beth Emanuel sermon for the week of Parshat Achrimot and Kedoshim. In his rebooting Beth Emanuel sermon, he talked about growing pains in our synagogue. Four different categories of growing pains. Number one, resentment among the Gentile members toward the Jewish members. Number two, disenfranchisement among Gentiles regarding the role and place in the synagogue. Number three, merging together of Jewishness and righteousness and right standing before God. And number four, confusion and meaning of Jewish identity, which results in confusion of Gentile identity, of course. He talked about a hard reboot and a reading of spiritual malware, the conflict of the distinction theology, which we now hold, and the old, obsolete, and outdated programming of one-law theology, kind of lurking in the background and gunking up the system. I don't want to rehash all of those points. In fact, this talk is entitled, Your Yeshua, Your Salvation Among the Nations, a quote from Psalm 67, which we're reading Every night as we count the Omer, as we count up to Shavuot, but the subtitle is really the kicker. Why being born a Gentile is the most fantastic and amazing thing that ever happened to you. And I really mean it, as we'll see. So let's go ahead and really give the punchline, I think, of what Pastor Lancaster was trying to say a year ago. You see, Beth Emanuel doesn't need to learn distinction theology so much as it needs to learn to practice distinction theology well. There's confusion about Gentile and Jewish roles and obligations to the Torah. And see, Pastor Lancaster's message wasn't against Gentile families who modeled or practiced after traditional Judaism, but that other families and Gentiles who don't might be made to feel lesser than and somehow not as spiritual. He talked about the double message. Well, you don't have to keep kosher. You don't have to keep Shabbat. You don't have to keep holidays, etc., but you really should. He talked about these growing pains arising as really we made the transfer from Beth Emanuel Christian Fellowship to Beth Emanuel Messianic Synagogue. So let me ask some hard questions. Have we worked on these issues? Have these growing pains been resolved? Is our community and by extension all of our virtual members, those in Torah clubs and our home fellowships and Messianic communities dotted across the U.S. and abroad, are those places where Jews and Gentiles are, to quote the old Messianic hymn, one in Messiah? I want to revisit, revisit this rebooting effort. Now, I don't want to address all of the issues of distinction and the thorny issues of applying Torah and halacha to Gentiles. I'll leave that for greater minds in mind. 
But I do want to do three things. I want to give confidence. I want to give inspiration. And I want to give encouragement. Right now, Pastor Lancaster is in the middle of an Ephesians series. And I don't want to rehash all those sermons. But I do want to highlight a few points. You know, as the joke goes. In any sermon, how often can you repeat a good story? About once a year. In any sermon, how often can you repeat a good joke? About every six months. And in the sermon, how often can you repeat the same message? Every week. Amidst the efforts to restore the identity and good name of our master, there's a detrimental trap that I think Shaul, Paul, thought that we might fall in. And I kind of want to call it losing the awe and wonder of the Messianic Gentile. Let me explain. In his Let's Read Ephesians sermon on Ephesians chapter 1, he introduces to two groups of readers of Shaul, Paul's letter. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, he talked about one group that had spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, chosen before the foundation of the world, determined in advance that through Yeshua the Messiah, they would be sons and daughters, redemptions, blessings of inheritance, etc. But then there's a second group that shows up in verse 13, and he keyed us into the second group. In his second sermon, the immeasurable sermon of Ephesians chapter 2, he talked about Paul's worry that Gentiles might want to ditch their Gentile identity and become Jewish. Well, what was Paul's solution? There's really three things. Number one, the calling of God, the same calling that our holy apostles, the prophets of old, and men and women of God had from God. That's the same calling that we have today. But he talks about, number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance and all the tzaddikim and all the saints, an inheritance promised to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of great blessings, a prosperous land, and how that belongs to people from all nations who are joining themselves to the Jewish people through Yeshua. But number three, he talked about the immeasurable greatness of his power, the resurrection from the dead, that God's power is in the resurrection of the dead and Messiah's authority and resurrection power. In a nutshell, Gentile disciples need to stop thinking that they're just Gentiles. Really the starting point, and this is to give everybody confidence, is that the amazing fact that you are walking and breathing fulfillment of prophecy and that this has been God's plan all along. The very fact that if you don't have any Jewish ancestry in your background, then that means your grandfather, your grandfather's grandfather, or your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, whatever it is, was a pagan. And that a Jewish person or somebody taught by a Jewish person taught them about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that that is a fulfillment of prophecy. Indeed, in Acts 15, that's what the Jerusalem Council was talking about. And they used Amos chapter 9 to talk about it, describing the Gentiles, the nations that are called by my name, says the Lord. But let me ask a hard question. We want one one law theology to be true. Pastor Lancaster candidly talked about his biases and enthusiasms for Yiddishkeit, for Judaism. And that that would drive people to want to have all the same obligations and privileges applied to them. Wouldn't that just be a little easier? But Paul dissuaded Gentiles from becoming Jewish and insisted on distinction. Why? So that God's kingdom can contain all nations not just Israel. And that was the very fact of fulfillment of prophecy. So where do we find ourselves today? 
you know, it's especially hard realizing that we're in the midst of a huge chasm between, on the one hand, the historic church and its replacement theology, the history of Christian anti-Semitism, or those in the name of Christianity that perpetrated anti-Semitism, and the tens and tens of thousands of different expressions and denominations of, of Christianity all reinventing the wheel. But on the other side, the older brother of Judaism with its prophets, wisdom of God contained in the Hebrew Bible, and the volumes and tomes of discussion about applying and putting God's word into action. We're in the middle of these two juggernauts, we're in the middle of these titan religious movements, and in the middle stands poor old little Messianic Judaism. To be sure, the kinds of paradigm shifts needed to bridge the gap between this chasm of these two related religions can seem daunting and overwhelming, to say the least. However, Shaul, Paul reminds us of the immeasurable greatness of the power of God that he talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, in his beginning of the letter. And that that same great might that he worked in Messiah when he raised him from the dead is in all of us. Me and a friend, Yoshi McLeod, a lot of you might know him who are listening to this, used to be roommates in Los Angeles, California. And we lived in a heavily populated Jewish neighborhood. And in fact, we had the privilege of going synagogue hopping, as it were, every Shabbat and every holiday. And there was a synagogue that's kind of a little bit of a hole-in-the-wall synagogue that I really liked because the people there were really serious. At any hour of the day, you can go there and find men, you know, studying the Torah, studying God's laws, studying to show themselves approved as it were. As it were. Well, as the inevitable might happen, we got found out, quote unquote, and all of a sudden there we were sitting, sitting across the table from these rabbis, you know, the rabbis I'm talking about, the ones with the long beards and the big black hats. And so our plan going in there was we were going to talk about the historical Jesus, not the Jesus of Christian faith, but the historical Yeshua that actually walked and breathed the air in Jerusalem. However, they weren't having any of it. As we were going ahead and talking about our beliefs and and describing what we actually believe, one of the rabbis jumped up and said, you know, Paul in the book of Acts canceled the Torah and said, we don't have to follow the Torah anymore. And you know who told me that? A pastor. Who are you to say that that pastor is wrong? I just bowed my head, shaking in disbelief. You see, my friends, you have the power to change that narrative among your Christian friends, among your family, and other pastors. I'm very proud to say that my in-laws, Dan and Bonnie Como, you might know them. They were formerly in Missouri. Now they're in sunny Florida. A little jealous. But Dan was able to sit with a pastor in the church that he attended. And for many years, the pastor and him kind of went back and forth and back and forth. But little by little, God started to chip away at the pastor's heart. And now that pastor has fundamentally changed his church. And he's actually in a Torah club with Dan. Now, not to even speak of the Moore family. You might know them, Daniel and Danielle Moore and their beautiful children. They're having an amazing impact in mega mega churches and with individual pastors in, in Arkansas. Michael Brown, no, not that Michael Brown, Michael Brown, a missionary and a friend of Dan Como as well, got to know me through 
through a Torah study that we had, a daily Torah study in the morning. And Dan was really working on his heart. And as soon as I was able to build a relationship with, with, this, with this beautiful missionary working in South and Central America, he came to me and a few other people that you might know. And he asked us to rewrite all of the devotional material for his entire ministry. And now there's hundreds, thousands, maybe even more pastors and other people in Central America that are learning about Messianic Judaism for the first time, and they're on fire. See, each one of these examples comes from people who just stepped out and built a relationship, and over time, were able to influence those around them. They bloomed where they were planted. You are in a unique position to speak to Christians, Jewish Christians, by building relationships, inviting to a Torah club, sharing Messianic resources, inviting people for coffee and or Shabbat and holiday dinners, etc., etc. You're also poised to provoke Jews to curiosity. See, do we attribute our patronage to Judaica and kosher establishments to our faith in Messiah? I have a little news for you. Jewish shop owners and rabbis expect you to believe in Jesus. They expect you to talk about Jesus. Now, if you attribute your patronage to these places, these establishments, to the fact that you believe in Yeshua, well, why are you here at this kosher kosher shop? Why are you here at this Judaica shop? Well, it's because I believe in Jesus. What? Now, if the conversation is awkward and not, it dies a natural death, so be it. But maybe, just maybe, it piques curiosity in that rabbi or that shop owner. See, I remember very distinctly being at a Shabbat dinner of my friend Rabbi Derek. This this rabbi was an amazing rabbi who worked with high school age kids. And so he would go into secular high schools, round up all the Jewish kids, and at their lunchtime, have a Jewish club with them. Well, one day in walks this well-meaning Christian girl and hey, there's the rabbi right there. She asked, you know, burning question maybe she probably had. How come Jews don't believe in Jesus? Well, Rabbi Derek said, well, the Torah says to have a mezuzah on, on the door, on our doors. Do you have a mezuzah on, on your door? The girl said, no. He said, why not? Oh, because Jesus saved me from all my sins, implying that he's done away with all of the laws of the Torah, etc. And Rabbi Derek says, well, the Torah says to keep kosher. Do you keep kosher? Well, no, she said. He said, why not? Well, because Jesus saved me from all my sins. Again, indicating that he had done away with one foul swoop of the law. See, what if that What if that girl, that well-meaning girl, said, hey, there's a rabbi here. I have an opportunity. I'm going to ask him a burning question. And he asked those same questions to her. Well, do you have a mezuzah on your door? And she said, yes. He said, what? You believing in Jesus having a mezuzah on your door? What are you talking about? You see, that would provoke Jews to curiosity. And again, if the conversation dies a natural death, so be it. But just maybe Hashem can use that in the hearts of those Jewish people around you. You single-handedly have the power to fundamentally change the church. God has given you everything that you need. If I were to speak to that same Jewish person about my belief in Yeshua, I'm looked at as a traitor. But you, being one from the nations, being a Gentile, speaking to that same Jewish person, piques their curiosity, just maybe, with the work of the Holy Spirit. What about our own community? What about the homegrown Messianic community we have here in beautiful historic Hudson, Wisconsin, as Pastor Lancaster likes to say? What about those virtual members that are listening in, the Torah clubs and our home fellowships and Messianic communities? My story of moving to Beth Emanuel, one that took me a long time. I had been a visitor to Beth Emanuel 
been through all to the Messianic conferences year after year. And slowly but surely, as I became persona non grata, being kicked out of you know, almost every Jewish synagogue in southern Los Angeles, I have the distinct honor, and I wear it like a badge of honor, of being kicked out. Why? Because I simply wanted to go go pray or go learn from a rabbi, etc. But I have this pesky little problem. It's called, I believe in Jesus. I really deliberated for a good six months to almost a year whether I should move to Beth Emanuel or not. See, Beth Emanuel at that time didn't really have very many Jews. So there really wasn't any chance for a, a minyan. And also, there was a slight problem of disagreement theologically that I had with Beth Emanuel, where counted Gentiles in a minyan and did Gentile Torah services. So I really prayed about it and I deliberated. Well, what was the clincher? And this I, I share with my Jewish brothers and sisters listening in, was that the last words, the last commission of our, of our rabbi, our rabbi Yeshua, our master, was to go into all the nations and teach. And I said, well, there's plenty of nations here in Beth Emanuel. So I felt the impetus to go and to do that. That's exactly why I wanted to give this message that's been burning in my heart all these years. There's a fundamental problem. Gentiles are part of the body. They're co-heirs in the Messianic kingdom. They're part of the family. But sometimes there's no places for them to serve. What does the former worship leader who no longer has a place in Shabbat morning synagogue service do? What wisdom does the mature, decades-long prayer warrior and follower of Messiah do to share his or her wisdom? Does a member of our community who has cultivated a deep, intimate relationship with our Messiah feel he or she can't be of any use if they can't read Hebrew or they're unfamiliar with Jewish halakha and rabbinic literature? What about the upcoming teen or 20-something? Do we have pathways for them to advance in ministry and service of God? How we accomplish all this? It seems so daunting. Well, I have an idea. Based on the next set of verses in chapter 4 in the letter to the Ephesians. In verses 7 through 12, it talks about the grace that was given to each one of us according to the measure of Messiah's gift. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and women. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers who equip us for the work of ministry for building up the body of Messiah. Being one in Messiah means uniting together and recognizing the gifts Hashem has given us to build each other up. Writing to the community in Corinth, Shaul Paul says this, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, to another faith, to another gifts of healing, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Messiah. For in one spirit, we were all immersed into one body, Jews and Gentile. Now, if you have some questions about some of those spiritual gifts, I recommend a book um, that came out of a conference of First Fruits of Zion called Gifts of the Spirit. It goes over, uh, goes over a number of those things from a Jewish perspective, and it's really, really useful. Shaul continues to enumerate in other letters the gift of serving, the gift of faith, giving, leadership. Helping, like Shamashim, administration, miracles, counseling, acts of mercy, Gimilut Chasidim, 
feeling emotional and physical, stepping into your gifts as Beth Emanuel and in fact, many other messianic congregations and home fellowships began to put plans in place to open up again. It could look like musical havdalas or on Sunday or midweek home get-togethers, helping with leadership and administration and volunteer positions and aiding with synagogue needs. It can look like lay leadership positions, working with children, youth, and young adults, reaching out to those who need physical and emotional healing. It can look like counseling young couples, just starting in marriage, etc., etc. The very fact is that Shem wants to use your unique gifts and talents, even if you can't read a lekka Hebrew or can't tell the difference between the Talmud Bavli and the Yerushalmi. Hashem wants to use you. However, in verses 13 through 16 is what I call the great caveat. Shaul continues, We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity. We may no longer be children, not carried about by every wind of teaching, speaking the truth and love to one another. We're to grow up in every way. You know, using your gifts and talents might look like getting healing and counseling for your past hurts. We are to be angry but not sin. Not letting corrupting talk come out of our mouths. Using language that builds up. Putting away bitterness. Not slandering each other by gossiping. Speaking evil of each other. Shoal adds in chapter 5 that, quote, No filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking should come out of our mouths. But being kind to one another forgiving one another as God and Messiah forgave you. I want to end with a beautiful, amazing, heartfelt dream that my wife, Tehila, had. My family and I are in our home in Israel. We know Yeshua has returned. It's the Messianic age. and We are waiting for our turn to speak with him. All of a sudden, at our door, Yeshua appears. Everyone is filled with joy and laughter and tears. Yeshua directs us all to the sitting room so we can sit and talk. He asks us to tell him about our life, every detail, not because he doesn't know it, but so he can connect with us. It's finally my turn and I'm telling my life story. All of a sudden, I start crying emotionally. I tell him, they didn't believe me. They didn't think you were real. And I go and asking, where were you? Yeshua then answers, I was there with you the whole time. I saw your pain. I felt the wetness of your tears. And I was there in the joy. I was always with you and never left your side. You see, my friends, my holy and sweetest friends, I want to be able to go to yeshiva. I want to be able to get ordination. But there's, like I said before, this pesky little problem called I believe in Jesus. Can you imagine all the rabbis and all the Jewish people that you've talked to or known or learned from, or learned about, if they were all able to talk to Christians who were fully messianic in their paradigm and in their perspective, what would that do to the Jewish people? Well, as Shaul says in one of his letters, to the, in his letter to the Romans, it would be like life from the dead. Take on my yoke And learn from me And find rest for your soul